This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. What are going to be the biggest changes in our homes by 2020? Will the house of the future protect the environment? And what new technology do researchers think we'll be living with? They'll want all the benefits of modern technology, but without all this cluttered and complex gadgetry that we have today. They'll want homes that work for them. By 2020, all of this will be possible. We'll have things under control without all of these knobs and buttons. And what's more, the technology itself will be embedded in the very fabric of the house and its furnishings. So the idea is, once all the clutter of technology has gone, you'll be able to furnish your rooms in any style you like. You won't actually be able to see the technology, but it will be there, doing its job without getting in your way. That means the lights automatically switch off and on as you walk between rooms. And the home learns how bright you like them. A simple command gives you music, perhaps piped in from a sound library. Bark, please. And no more PowerPoints. Plugs become pads, picking up power from anywhere on the wall. <laughs> but there's one area where homes are going to have to change. There will have been enormous pressure on us to cut down on our burning of fossil fuels to protect the environment. This means that energy management in our homes will become of critical importance. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. That was a report from the BBC done in 1989, making some predictions about what homes will be like in the year 2020. And I thought, you know, that was not too bad there, talking about technology embedded into homes and furnishings. Yeah, we see that happening. Uh, no more knobs and buttons to fool around with me. Voice-controlled music. Well, obviously, that's going on. Yeah, it was not too bad. Let's check in with Richard Warzel now. He is a futurist. His website is futuresearch.com. Richard, it's nice to talk to you again. Hi, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. What did you think of that BBC report? That was not too bad, huh? No, it was pretty good. Um, yeah. One thing that I've noticed in my own work is uh, that the technology is actually relatively straightforward to forecast. What is difficult is social acceptance, in other words, the way humans behave. And this is a perfect example of that, because virtually everything that they talked about um, is uh, doable, could be done now, but uh, it hasn't gained human acceptance. And let me give you an example, the burning of fossil fuels. We're still arguing about that, um, and although I think that that, that uh, is going to change this year, um, but that's a human thing. It's not a, not a scientific or a technology thing. Turning um, invisible technology, yes, that is absolutely here, but the clutter gone, think about um, if you're not using voice control, think about all the remotes that you have in your living room. Um, so, you know, the, the technology stuff, they were really very good. Yeah. The human interaction with technology, that's always the hard part. Okay. Richard, what exactly is a futurist? I want to get into your, some of your um, 
things that you expect to see in a new year and the new decade dawning here as well. But you're you're not like amazing Kreskin, right? You're not like no, making no, no. making. I'm cre- not a magician yeah. or a soothsayer <laughs> or a fortune <laughs> yeah. teller. Right. Um, I've been called a business futurist or a consulting futurist. A futurist is somebody, not somebody who predicts the future because the future is inherently unpredictable. Yeah. But like a biologist, a futurist, like biologists studying biology, a futurist studies the future as a subject matter. And the purpose of doing so is to help people plan and prepare for uncertainty by anticipating what could happen and offering contingency plans for it. Okay. When you talk about technology, let's start with that one, Richard, and, and some of the things that you're anticipating here. Now, as we heard in that sort of historic BBC report there, I thought it was pretty good when the when the reporter there talked about, you know, a voice command asking for the music that you like. I mean, that's just sort of bang on Alexa, you know, play, right. uh, play, play music for me. That was pretty accurate. But you're mentioning like, okay, we can sort of see the technology changes coming pretty quickly. But in terms of that human interaction that you cause, because now we get we got more debates about privacy and how much the technology is kind of infiltrating our lives, right? Yes, we do. Privacy yeah. is probably the single biggest Achilles heel of technology mm-hmm. uh, because unless we are comfortable that our information, our personal information, and I'm including things like your health, uh, any health threats you have, uh, any health threats in your background, your bank account, your credit card numbers, so those are all personal information. Unless you're sure that those things are secure, you're not going to trust a lot of these new technologies that come along. And most of the tech companies, like Facebook, are being criticized for not taking adequate steps to protect our privacy. Until that nut is cracked, until we can make sure that people have uh, a- absolute uh, privacy with their, their private information, technology's got a huge stumbling, stumbling block to overcome. Speaking to futurist Richard Warzel. Richard, let's talk a little bit about some of the big headlines that you maybe expect to see in the year 2020. So let's start with um, climate change. And I'm just watching the wildfires every day raging in Australia. It's unbelievable what's happening there. Do you anticipate that will obviously be a big story in 2020? Yes, it will. Um, yeah. Australia is, a, is actually a very good early example of the consequences of of climate change. And it seems, ironically, it seems fitting. I have cousins in Australia, so I'm not wishing this on them. But the Australian government has refused to accept that even climate change is happening, let alone take action on it, because they have a very big coal lobby and they make a lot of money exporting coal to places like India. Um, And as a result, they have prevented any action. They've actually rolled back actions that previous governments took on climate change, and they are now suffering from the effects of climate change, not purely because they didn't take action, because global, climate change is a global thing, not just a local thing. But it's, it's the kind of irony that we're going to see over and over again. Climate change, Australia's experience with climate change is kind of an early example of what we can expect in lots of places and that will affect billions of people around the world. It won't always be wildfires. It'll, it could be floods. It could be massive hurricanes like the one that hit the Philippines or the east coast of Africa. It could be, um, it could be violent thunderstorms. It can be uh, cold snaps that last for weeks at a time because of the slowing of the jet stream. We're going to see all these things happening, 
and it's going to be unpredictable. And there's no one who is safe. So it doesn't matter if you have a lot of money, um, and it doesn't matter if you think you live in a secure place. Everyone is going to be affected at one point or another. Let's talk a little geopolitics, Richard, and your anticipations for 2020. And one of the headlines that I've been following here over the last couple of days is the situation at, with the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad and U.S. President Donald Trump uh, blaming Ara- Iranian forces there for uh, fomenting some of the protests we see outside the U.S. Embassy. We see helicopters flying over the embassy there and, and Trump making some threats. Is this a situation you, you're watching closely, and are there any other kind of flashpoints around the world that could lead to instability or war even? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's no question that, that Iran has got their fingers in what's going on in the Iraqi embassy or the U.S. embassy in Iraq. Um, and Iran has no reason to try and cooperate with the United States after some of the steps that Trump did. Uh, took, such as pulling out of the agreement uh, that limited Iran's uh, research on nuclear weapons. Um, so what we are, are seeing there is the beginning of potentially a much bigger conflict between Iran and the United States, either directly or through proxies like Israel. Um, but there are other places that are hotspots, too, all of them uh, concerning but some of them that actually don't directly affect the United States. But let's start with North Korea. North Korea is, is threatening to start testing nuclear uh, weapons again and uh, missiles that could reach continental United States. That opens up an, an entirely new uh, kettle of fish in the discussions with North Korea. Now, Trump has said that he's got it all handled and da-da-da. Well, let's, let's find out. But because... Um, the leader of North Korea has been, is remarkably unpredictable in a different way than Trump. So you've got two unpredictable leaders pretending to negotiate with each other when all they're really trying to do is play to their audiences. You've okay. got other hot spots like Kashmir between Pakistan and India that could blow up. Ukra- Ukraine, uh, where Russia is still intent on, on encroaching on their territory. So there are lots of hot spots, and of course, the United, uh, Israel is, is always potentially a hot spot, sure. but um, particularly with their unsettled leadership. So there are a lot of things going on in the world that could lead to a shooting war or something very close to it. It's south of the border in the United States, Richard. Wow, what a year we've got coming up with the U.S. presidential election coming up and Trump seeking re-election. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think that... There are a lot of things. First of all, he has to get to the election. He, uh, he has been impeached by the House of Representatives. That has to be tried in the Senate. There's an argument going over how, what form that should take, and there's very little in the U.S. Constitution that actually tell, tells anyone. Uh, so that's going to be a major issue. Uh, the odds, very long odds, are that the Republican-controlled Senate is going to uh, acquit him of those articles of impeachment, right. but it may affect his reelection. And if something strange happens, if his, he does something bad, or if, if he looks bad because of Iran or, or North Korea or something, some other emergency we don't know about, there is a small but not impossible possibility that he will actually be convicted. Meanwhile, uh, it comes down to a question of of uh, is he going to be reelected if he does make it through to November? And it's not clear that he will. He's alienated enough of the people that voted for him last time that, um, for example, uh, non-college-educated women 
are, have, are turning against him. Many religious voters, not, not in evangelicals, but religious voters are turning against him. And he won only by the slimmest of possible majorities and only because of the Electoral College. He lost the popular vote. But the big issue, the big potentially explosive issue, isn't whether he's reelected or not. It is potentially that foreign interference in the U.S. election could render it unknown. In other words, the foreign interference could, for, uh, for example, in Florida, could make it impossible to tell who won Florida, which might make it impossible to tell who won the election. Um, I, the the Congress and particularly the Senate Republic Republicans have basically told foreign governments that they don't care if if they interfere in U.S. elections, and as a result, you're going to see at least Russia, probably Iran, possibly China, and almost certainly North Korea, tinkering and trying to interfere with the U.S. electoral process, and that could be the most explosive story of the year. How about rising acrimony between generations? And I'm thinking this sort of classic face-off we're seeing here now between the baby boomers and the millennials. I can see this in my own home. I got two teenage boys at home. The other day, Richard, I made a little crack about millennials just kind of joking around, and my 17-year-old son looked at me and said, gave me, the, gave me that line, okay boomer and uh he made a crack of his own about the environment being so messed up by the older generation i just thought ooh, you know it's there it's there it is there and it's not all jocular um you're going to see steadily rising acrimony um one of the founders of paypal actually wrote a book about this i don't offhand remember his name but um, in it, he he put uh, he b- basically blames the boomers for being greedy and running down all of the investments that were made or needed to be made in the economy. So, for example, following World War II in the 1950s, uh, we had North America had probably the best infrastructure in the world, and now it's falling apart because the boomers failed to invest in maintenance. Uh, the tax system has been kept artificially low because there was this mythology that all taxes are, are evil. Um, and as a result, we have, we have not only the failing infrastructure, but we have um, uh, plans, uh, sorry, policies that are underfunded and not serving people well. Uh, we have uh, the inaction on climate change. We knew back in the 1970s that this was happening. If you go back and read some of the reports there, and particularly reports by the oil companies. They knew what was going to happen. They knew roughly when it was going to happen, and they've been remarkably prescient on on the consequences, but we did nothing about it. So you look at all these things, and you look at the employment market and the the lack of opportunity for for, uh, younger generations, millennials and others, and they, there's good reason for them to be angry with the boomers, and it's not all going to be joshing and, and making fun. Right, right. Some of it is going to be very serious. Just about a minute left here, Richard. Let's hit one more here. Medical breakthroughs. I know that's always high on your list. Do you expect any medical breakthroughs in the new year or the new decade? Oh, yeah. I mean, AI is going to, going to jet propel uh, research and medical uh, findings. It is going to ultimately lead to uh, a much higher ability to detect uh, heart attacks, cancer, uh, diabetes much earlier, which means that we'll be able to take uh, proactive um, actions to prevent them from happening. 
uh, the searching of the huge amounts of genetic data and, and gene expression uh, activity is going to allow us potentially to turn back the aging process. Not completely, but in many very important ways. So there's a lot of good stuff happening, a lot of exciting work being done there. And uh, I think you're going to see some real breakthroughs in 2020. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time today and Happy New Year to you. And to you, Mike, and thanks for inviting me.